Welcome to Game Changers Live from Miami, Florida. My name is Sergio Tijera. I'm your host. And each and every week, we bring you someone who has been a game changer in their field and who's touched the lives of thousands to get their perspective on their journey, their mindset, their struggles and successes so that we can inspire you on your journey. So let's get started right now. My name is Sergio Tijera, your host, and today we have a very, very special guest with us. It's Dr. Michael Platt from the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative. He's the director there at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, Michael has extensive, extensive experience. Um, he's been a practicing neuroscientist for over 20 years, um, and he's finding out the, the reasons, the underlying reasons why we make the decisions that we do which impacts all of us. Every day we make decisions that, that accumulate to become patterns and, and patterns in our life then drive behaviors and actions and, and our trajectory of our life. And so now as we start approaching 2020, you know, how do we start making some better decisions or at least the best decisions that we can for ourselves so that we can start uh, getting on that trajectory that we want for ourselves and our families and our careers. So I have Dr. Michael Platt here with us. Welcome, Dr. Platt. It's great to have you on. Hey, it's great to be here, Sergio. I'm glad we could find a good, <clears throat> a good Wi-Fi signal uh, at some point somewhere in my house. So uh, yeah, it's really, uh, really great um, to be able to connect with you on this uh, podcast. Cool. Thank you so much. So tell me, tell me a little bit back, you know, about your background. Um, obviously, you have a, um, a bachelor's from Yale, yep. and you did your... You see a bachelor's from Yale and your master's in PhD in, in uh, anthropology. So it's, you know, my, um, you know, it's funny because although I'm a, you know, practicing neuroscientist and I'm in a business school, I'm a professor of psychology. I have no real uh, honest to God certification in any of those fields. So my degrees are all in anthropology, you know, which is a study of human nature and, uh, and that's really kind of what it's all about for me and what it's always been about, which is trying to understand, you know, what makes us tick as people and, um, and how we can, you know, through an understanding of that, uh, hopefully help people to do a better job and, you know, lead healthier, happier lives. Yeah. And so, you know, as we start thinking about decision-making, it's obviously influenced and tainted by all of our experiences in the past, things that have happened to us. Um, as we, you know, decide to take an action, we're reflecting back and saying, okay, have I, have I seen something like this before? You know, is this going to be positive for me or negative? Uh, you know, you start weighing the consequences, so to speak, I guess the positive and the negative. Tell us a little bit about how that, how that works. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think it, it's really interesting right now because there has been so much focus in the media on decision-making from kind of the, the economic point of view, right? And it's <clears throat> in some ways a perspective that goes back hundreds of years, but in the past 30 years or so, there's been uh, lots and lots of really interesting work from behavioral economics from like Danny Kahneman and Dick Thaler and other, you know, Dan Ariely, um, folks who've kind of shown us that um, we're not as rational uh, in our decisions as we might think. 
And, um, and, you know, I think that's a really important insight, but when you dig into the neuroscience, there's a couple of things that really stand out. Um, most of that, you know, that rationality is not like, it's just not, it's not some weird facet of psychology. Uh, it really emerges from the way our brains are built and a lot of the constraints uh, on their function. And this is basically all happening beneath your awareness. Uh, most of the decisions we make are, are, you know, happening, you know, very rapidly um, without our knowledge of the underlying process. And, um, and they unfold in a way that uh, reflects those biological constraints and also reflects the kinds of um, decision-making challenges that people faced a long time ago before they were in a modern environment. And so, you know, you're kind of working with a, a device built to solve, you know, other kinds of challenges. Right. right. Um, and to do so in a relatively fast and efficient way, given the constraints of biology. And that's what I think kind of leads to a lot of the, you know, the, the difficulties that we have um, making decisions. So like, you know, in one of your videos, you mentioned, you know, why do we grab a donut versus an apple, right? I think yeah. everyone's struggling with that. I just got off a cruise. I think I'm you know, three pounds <laughs> over. I was right. thinking that same thing when I watched your video and I said, man, it's so simple. I know I should eat right. You know, I know I should go to the gym. Why is it so hard to make that decision? Yeah, well, again, it's because your body and your brain evolved, you know, and developed long time ago under conditions where uh, there wasn't so much food around us. And so, much, so, so, you know, we have an innate drive to uh, go for high calorie foods and to go for high fat foods because those things uh, in the past were really important for sustaining life. Now with food everywhere and so much of it, uh, so calorie rich, yeah. you know, that, that, that mechanism that's in our heads, uh, can, can really drive us, um, drive us crazy. Cause it's really hard to override. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're, we're, we're going against the tide here or against the river. And so, yeah. you know, how do you handle that? Like, what are some strategies to say, all right, I know this is happening. Yeah. You know, how, how could we override the system, so to speak? That, well, you know, that's the billion trillion dollar question of behavior change and that, you know, everybody is, there's so many people working on this and trying to, you know, and I think kind of what's happening is we're nibbling around the edges, chipping away at it because these, you know, these processes are so deeply wired into our brains that it, that it is difficult um, to overcome. I mean, one of the things that, we, there's several things that I've learned along the way. I mean, one is that, um, I mean, we all know that it's often difficult to make a good decision and make a fast decision. And that's actually built into the system and the way our brains really make decisions. So because they kind of, you know, our, our brains are weighing up evidence um, in the way that uh, you might fill up buckets of, you know, water, um, you know, in order to reach a decision in, a, in essence. Uh, so that takes time. Um, and, it, you know, that the, bit, the bigger the bucket, the better your evidence and the more accurate your decision. But if you want to make a really quick decision, you have to have a smaller bucket in a sense. And if you do that, you're more likely to make a mistake. So, you know, the, the real, you know, one real take-home message, and this is a take-home message that even the behavioral economists have, have you know, Put out there is to try to slow down. Do whatever you can to slow down. Um, if you can slow down, consider your options, take a breath, 
uh, you'll give yourself time to weigh up a bit more evidence and do a better job of evaluating it. So I think that is, that's definitely one um, feature. Uh, you know, another one is, um, is the fact that we are so wired to be social. And um, what that means, and we're often so unaware of this, is that we're influenced by the people around us and even by people we don't know. So if you see somebody who's powerful or, you know, who's attractive or who's, you know, a celebrity uh, endorsing something, some product, you know, we become more likely to want to buy it. And that's not because we're dumb. Um, it's because, again, evolution has built into our nervous system this uh, sensitivity to what other people are doing. So we, you know, we copy people and we're particularly attentive to people who seem to have been very successful uh, in life. And that can, you know, be both good and bad. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, and the attachment to to social media is it's so powerful these days. And, you know, I have, I have kids and I see it, you know, oh, yeah. happening in, with our kids and my generation or our generation, we kind of have one leg in, in the old day, you know, pre-technology yeah. and then one leg in, in the new one. And even myself, I find it very difficult to, to disconnect. But when I, when I actually do it, you know, it's almost like a little bit of a withdrawal period, <laughs> right? Right. That you just don't know what to do, you know, yeah. without your phone, but, and then you can actually, you know, reflect and, and think. And I think one yeah. of the things you said in one of your talks was that you can't be hooked into technology and social media and, and being able to also free, you know, freely think and, and come up with new and creative, innovative ways to, to do things. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, that's for several reasons. I mean, let's face it, um, technologists have invented an incredible device for keeping us <laughs> hooked into it. You know, it grabs our attention and it delivers small bits of reward um, very rapidly. Uh, and so that what that's what keeps us going. That's what keeps you uh, liking away on social media, um, you know, chasing clickbait online. It's really, really hard to overcome and really hard to put that thing down, um, put down the phone, put, you know, step away from the computer. I mean, you're right. One of the things that we have learned is that um, when you are engaged in something like that, that is routine, that's just um, got you pushing buttons out of habit, uh, it's very difficult to be creative and innovative at those moments because <clears throat> the systems in your brain that, um, you know, that, that allow you to be creative and innovative and explore new ideas and think outside the box, they're completely opposite to the ones that keep you focused and engaged and uh, banging away at you know, some habit. And um, you know, when, when one of those systems is turned up, the other one's turned down. And in order to, uh, to really kind of liberate your mind and, and free, you know, free up your thinking, you have to disengage from you know, whatever it is. I mean, it, it, you know, it could be, uh, Routine work, uh, like uh, you know, filling out Excel spreadsheets. If you know, if that's what mm -hmm. your job, or it could be, you know, just habitually, uh, you know, surfing your way uh, through social media, which is again is not is not going to put you in a very, um, you know, in a very innovative mindset. Yeah. That's interesting. But you know, when, when people are, let's say you drive the same way to work every day, right? That's, yeah. that's a habit. Yeah. Um, puts you on autopilot yeah. so that you can actually think of other things and not have to actually worry about, 
you know, being completely present when you're driving because you're, you're just yeah. used to getting there to work. Does that, does that work in the same way? I mean, are, are we able to think about other things while we drive because of I it? I think that's, that's, different? that's an interesting question. So, I mean, I think there are some behaviors that are so habitual, right, that they don't really require much in the way of cognitive resources at all. And that can be a moment when you are actually totally disengaged from what you're doing and it does allow your mind to wander. Uh, sometimes quite, you know, it can be quite surprising and you say, oh, where was the last, you know, two miles of road? I don't remember mm -hmm. uh, driving past it because you were so deep in your head. I mean, I think what, I, what I'm really talking about is when you're really uh, focused on doing something that uh, on the one hand doesn't require a lot of thought, but it requires your attention, right? So if you were, um, let's say, you know, the, a really good example of that would be doing arithmetic, okay? So it's not that cognitively challenging if I'm just saying, giving you numbers to add together. Uh, that, um, you know, it's, it's well-learned, uh, you know how to do it, um, you're just spitting out numbers. Uh, and when you're doing that, it does require some focus and some attention, and and that's a state that uh, that interferes with real free creative thinking. Right, right. And so it's kind of like the concept of of when you lock on to something, you lock out other right. ways of of thinking, right? And so um, in the business setting, when you are convinced that your way or your your, you know, your opinion is the right one. Do we, we tend to lock out the viewpoints of others, right? And not even consider them because we're just trying to support our own argument. That's right. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that is, uh, I'm not sure we understand exactly what that process looks like in the brain, but once you, you know, it's certainly your experience, your subjective experience is that once you have committed to a particular uh, way of thinking, it's very difficult to uh, change that way of thinking. Um, you know, one of my colleagues here at uh, Penn in the Annenberg School, Emily Falk, is doing amazing work on, um, and it's very relevant for behavior change. Uh, this is amazing work that um, tries to identify the practices and mindsets and the underlying biology that can help a person who is stuck in one of those rigid beliefs or patterns of behavior, and let's just take a health-related example like smoking or uh, being sedentary or, or eating poorly, and it's very difficult to reach those people, very difficult for them to hear the message that they need to change, and very difficult for them to implement that, right? And what Emily's finding, um, and she's systematically uh, validating the, the underlying, our knowledge of the underlying um, brain mechanisms is that practices like affirmations, which we were talking about before, and um, kind of kindness meditation for, for vivid others. And what she, the way she puts this is that these are self-transcendent practices. So you're not focusing on yourself, you're focusing on somebody else or a belief or an ideal that, um, you know, that's important to you. And when you do that, that seems to evoke activity in a part of your brain that's really important for um, for driving your own behavior change and for um, creating a sense of value in something. And it could be the value you uh, see in eating a donut or buying a Coca-Cola 
or in this case, um, getting off the couch, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, what she's shown is that those practices somehow, those affirmations and kindness meditation, self-transcendent practices, um, kind of turn this part of the brain on. And the more it does turn on, the more you actually hear that message and the more likely you are to change your behavior. And it's not just changing your behavior within the confines of the experiment, you know, like the hour that you're in there, but it's like over the next three months. So if you put an activity monitor on somebody and they're a sedentary person and you say before the experiment, I want you to focus on, you know, family, if that's your most important value. Uh, think about your family in vivid terms uh, in a time that your family uh, helped you through something difficult. And now I'm going to expose you to a message that says, that tells you why it's really important for you to start being more active, right? And what she's finding is that um, that turns this value part of the brain on. And the more it turns it on, the more likely people are to actually get up off the couch and move, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's super interesting because, you know, one of the things that I was always taught is that, um, you know, we, we need to create a, re a replacement picture for ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to just be replaying the old tapes. Um, you know, when we set, yeah. when we set a goal, um, not only setting it in, in writing, but being very specific about and very visual and bringing feeling into it because feeling yeah. emotion is a huge part of a mo you know, motivator, right? Absolutely. Um, I met a gentleman that, you know, was about 200 pounds overweight and his goal was, was to weigh, I think it was 180 you know, for his daughter's wedding. And so that yeah. was an important enough visualization and reason to, to lose that weight. Wow. But if you don't make a, a, if you don't set a big enough goal that means something to you, then it's just not, you're not going to get the energy or the motivation to, you know, to overcome that dominant picture of, Hey, I'm just fat. I've always been fat. <laughs> I'm going right. to stay fat. I'm just right. a fat kid. You know, um, yeah. how do you change that image, you know, that mental image? And that's so important for people because, you know, so many people are struggling, you know, with weight loss or with self, you know, val you know valuing themselves, their, their worthiness. Absolutely. I mean, it cuts across everything. I mean, this is uh, for physical health. It's for behavioral health, you know, mental health uh, as well. I mean, I think a lot of people get stuck uh, in the mindset of, you know, well, I'm a depressed person, you know, or... I'm an anxious person. I mean, you know, sure, there's some biology to that, but you know, you it it's kind of taking on the mindset or that making that your identity, right? When in fact, um, I think you can change that identity. Um, we just have to figure out how to unlock that change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so you know, on on the point of identity, I think a lot of people are caught up in um, confusing their title with who they are. Yeah, right, right. Absolutely. You know, when you kind of ask them, you know, hey, you know, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm the vice president at, at this bank. No, I'm like, who are you? Like, <laughs> you know? yeah. and so right. it's funny how when you change jobs, all of a sudden you realize how caught up we've been in, you know, in that identity and, and how that impacts our, our decision making or point of view, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, and I, I think that, um, yeah, I was having this conversation. When was it? Uh, maybe yesterday with some uh, doing another podcast and um, and we were talking about uh, this sort of epidemic of deaths of despair uh, in this country um, you know where 
suicides are on the rise and death due to alcoholism and drug abuse, uh, which seem to be, you know, related to people's loss of a sense of identity, or at least that their sole focus is on their, um, you know, their economic identity rather than the other aspects of who they are as a person. And, you know, I think that's really, you know, it's critical to recognize and realize that there's more to a person than their job. But, um, yeah, we're a capitalist country, and so, uh, you know, jobs are important, but I think it's, it's also really relevant for, you know, and, and it's a message that has to keep getting out there, which is that you're more than your job, and uh, those are sources of meaning in your life, uh, you know, and that those sources of meaning used to be the things that sustained people, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, when, when times were difficult. Absolutely. Fantastic. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back here with Dr. Michael Platt from the, uh, the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative at the University of Pennsylvania. And we'll be right back. Thanks again for joining me, Dr. Platt. Yeah, right. it's great. It's a real pleasure to be here. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was this concept that I kind of coined, uh, handbrake beliefs. And for this, uh, for, for you to understand a little bit about what this, what this means is that I feel that most people have been driving around life with their handbrake on. And now for those of you who are, let's say under 30, maybe a handbrake is, you know, right there in the center between the two seats in the car. Um, and, and the reason why I call it that is because you can move and you can get to where you need to go with, with that handbrake engaged but you're not firing on all cylinders, so to speak. You're not running at optimal efficiency and effectiveness. And I think a lot of us, um, whether it was intentional or not, have been raised in a way that um, we gave sanction to some of these beliefs that were possibly just opinions of others, right? Mm. Something your mom said one time, and that just stuck with you forever. Uh, something that uh, somebody told you on your baseball team or your coach or your teacher. Uh, or, you know, experiences you've had, et cetera. And all that are, you know, accumulate to become beliefs that tend to hold you back. Just like if you, you know, if you plant a, a pumpkin seed in the ground, you'll get a pumpkin. But if you plant it in a jar, it's going to come out looking like a jar, thinking <laughs> that it's supposed to look that way um, without even realizing it, right? And so, um, you know, for, for those people listening out there that are looking forward to, uh, you know, a fantastic 2020 big goals, um, but they haven't reached, you know, let's say they haven't reached all their goals this year and they don't want to repeat that same pattern next year. What are some, uh, I, I guess let's just talk about beliefs and the yeah. impact that beliefs have on, you know, on your brain and neuroscience and your decisions. Yeah. I mean, this is a, again, this is one of the, I think biggest and most important topics we can consider. And it's also, something that uh, is a big part of what it means to be a human being, right? Which is that our beliefs can be so powerful that we will even yeah. sacrifice our lives for a belief, right? right. I mean, there's no animal on the planet uh, that will do that. So that is something that is uniquely human. That said, I mean, beliefs, the, the sort of the capacity to have beliefs about the world and for that to um, help shape and structure the decisions that you make it, it is it that is a, a system a capacity that um you know that we share with other animals it's just that it's so much more developed and because of language and concepts we can enrich it in a way that uh, it can be 
incredibly complicated and and um, and very powerful. But it's you know just for a little bit of understanding, belief based uh, decision making really um, kind of is there in your brain and evolved as a, uh, a kind of a complement to the more basic system that uh, is a system that's driven purely by rewards and punishment. So just kind of the incremental, um, you know, little bits of reinforcement you get for doing one thing versus another and that ultimately uh, shape and produce habits and things like that. So um, beliefs, the belief-based system is, a, is another system that comes on top of that. And belief-based system is all about forming a mental model of the world and your place within that world. And, you know, I think that the fact that these are two interacting systems means that, um, you know, this belief-based system can override uh, ultimately habits, right? So um, it can, it can circumvent those habits if we understand how to uh, access those beliefs. And, um, but on the other hand, there are some habits such as, uh, you know, habitual compulsive taking of drugs and things like that, um, that are so powerful, they can override and change mm. beliefs. You know what I mean? So because, for example, drugs of abuse, whether they're cocaine or methamphetamine directly access that, that habit, um, kind of reinforcement based system. And so for that reason can be so powerful. Um, you know, I don't, you know, it's clear that, uh, you know, as we were just saying, a belief can be so powerfully positive that it will allow you to do something amazing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whether it's, uh, you know, sailing across an unknown ocean um, because you believe there's a continent on the other side mm -hmm. or, um, you know, a moonshot where you believe that you know, you'll actually, you believe in the engineers that they, uh, they'll, they're going to get you there in that tin can. But, you know, I, I think the converse is, is equally um, powerful, which is that it can hold you back. Right. I mean, a yeah. belief, it can, uh, in the face of all evidence to the contrary. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that's where we see the, you know, negative beliefs where, uh, which can be even quite pathological. So people who develop beliefs about uh, what they look like or their own body, which can um, manifest in uh, eating disorders or body dysmorphic disorders, which are um, very difficult to treat. Mm -hmm. And those are, and that fly in the face of reality, right? So it's like, it, it's fascinating, but also, um, you know, really, really challenging to know, to, to really, you know, I think from a medical standpoint, from a self-help standpoint, it's difficult to know how to, to really uh, get into that system. If you could, you know, that's, you know, that you're unlocking the secrets and, you know, some of the stuff we talked about earlier with regard to Emily Falk's work um, and, and some other folks, I think that's really just starting to really crack it open in a way that we can, um, feel very uh, confident, right? That, um, that we understand how it works and that if we implement it, uh, it will work for us. We can change what we believe. We can change our behavior for good. Right, right, right. And, you know, I was reading a book uh, called The Biology of Belief that tied hmm. how our beliefs are actually tied to us on a cellular level and how it, you know, a belief can actually impact us. 
So that could be a, a really interesting take. I would love to hear your take on that book. Um, but, you know, talking about overriding a belief, like you said, that's like unlocking the secret, right? If we could, um, you know, if I can surgically say, okay, I've had the belief that I feel that I'm not worthy of receiving love. I'm not worthy of this title. Or, you know, I think that's a, that's a big um, issue in mental health today is people feeling that they don't deserve something or they're not worthy of, of love or they're not worthy of, uh, of success. Um, and they tend to sabotage that you know, and, and how to, how to override, um, that specific belief that, you know, that you've been dealing with for a while and you want to be, become very intentional about changing that belief. Um, you know, I guess part of that, uh, is, is Emily's work and trying to figure out, either well, I think, you know, there's other things. I mean, there's so many people who've done really great work in the, you know, and just on the behavioral side of this and, <clears throat> and who work in fields like coaching who work in, um, you know, in, in various kinds of uh, personal help um, uh, fields, you know, the first thing is recognizing, you know, kind of becoming aware that's, you know, it's sort of a truism, it's a little bit trite, but it's, that's the first step. Um, because if you don't have awareness, then you're just stuck in that pattern. Mm -hmm. So the first thing you have to do is become aware of it. And, and also acceptance, right? It's, it's yeah. saying, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I get it. I, I, I'm not, not going to just deny it and pretend it's not there, right? Right, right, exactly. And I think that, you know, one of the things I think you were hinting at before, um, some people just are really, really sensitive to what other people say, right? And it can really affect them in a very deep way. Whereas other people are, you know, things wash over them and they don't, they're, they're relatively, they're, you know, their self view their self-identity and concept is is much um, more impervious uh, to outside influences now you know that means people are on a spectrum and uh it's not good to be at either you know extreme right right, right. if you're completely impervious to what other people say uh immune on hearing you know you're the ultimate um i'm the sociopath i guess exactly. <laughs> yeah. right. but if you're so sensitive to what other people are saying then yeah. you're going to be depressed and anxious um and unable to function so we all want to be somewhere in that in that um sweet spot in the middle and and in today's you know world that um self-image and value is determined by the number of likes you get you know yeah. especially it's it's incredibly scary um, you know, having kids and, and just seeing it, just, you know, seeing it myself, like I've gotten those feelings as well. You start, you know, comparing and comparison is just the, like the killer, right? The killer toxin because nothing good is going to come from that. Social, I mean, the, the degree to which we now subject ourselves to social comparison, whether it's on social media or even just watching TV, you're always seeing somebody who's got more money than you. You know, when, Hundreds of years ago, uh, the only people you saw in your environment were, you know, maybe in your village, uh, and there wasn't this extreme degree of difference across people. And it was, you know, you pretty much saw the same people every day. Now you're seeing thousands of people who, you know, and everybody seems to have more and <laughs> to be getting, mm -hmm. you know, and whatever, getting more likes, etc. And you know, we have this social comparison mechanisms really wired into our brains as it is for all social animals. Um, we are all wired to, you know, in some sense, strive for status a little bit uh, because it can be helpful. But, um, but that means that 
comparison process is uh, is difficult to avoid. And um, mm-hmm. you know, and it and it um, you know we know. I mean, we've been we've been. This is a lot of the work that we've been doing. I mean, there are specific spots in your brain that are sensitive to your relative status to others, and um, and you know, and and the, we don't understand so much about that, but we do know that. Um, you know, that's connected to uh, physical health, that's connected to um, other aspects of success. And, uh, you know, it's, it's troubling that we're, we're really tinkering with this mechanism in a, in a pretty um, powerful way and a, a ubiquitous way, you know, that, that's everything. And not knowing what the consequences are going to be. No, we've been running this experiment on ourselves and our children for the last 15 years. And, um, you know, there's a relatively lot of, short period of time. Yeah. Know. I mean, you know, my oldest son was like the first generation to have an iPhone. And um, look, there's not really good data on this. And there's not a comparison group for the experiment. But, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty disturbing coincidence, uh, of the, you know, the rise of... Um, you know, of, of anxiety, anxiety, depression, depression uh, in young people, of loneliness and disconnection, and you know that happening hand in hand with um, you know personal digital technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so going back to you know the point on decision making, as we bring this you know in for a, for a landing, yeah, the the locus of control, this kind of concept of having an internal or external locus of control that either you know I'm. I believe that I'm in control of my life or that life just kind of happens to me. Yeah. Um, that is a, you know, every day we have uh, a choice to decide on how we want to look at something, you know, what, what we're going to do today, what kind of energy we're going to bring into to the world. Um, you know, tell me a little bit more about, about the locus of control. Um, the fact that we are always able to have a choice and that's, that's, tremendously important because then we can decide, okay, are we going to go, you know, this way, we're going to go that way. What's best for us. Um, and how this all kind of works in to decision-making because we are actually in control. It's just, we have to control our thoughts. There's not always so easy. Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a fascinating topic and one that neuroscientists debate all the time, because I think that if you ask most neurobiologists, um, about, uh, kind of, will, you know, uh, our ability to, you know, that we're the driver of our own train, um, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, they would say that's sort of a, you know, that is a, um, an illusion and that it's sort of an epiphenomenon and that basically all these things are happening at a very subconscious, you know, even cellular level, and, um, ult- you know, even though it's statistical, ultimately, things just happen in our brains and we choose things. We choose things before we're aware that we're even um, choosing, them. <laughs> choosing them. And, uh, which makes it very difficult to suppose that you are, you know, <laughs> that you're actually in control of the process. Um, so on the one hand, that's the debate and where most neurobiologists come down at, but it's very hard to square that with the feeling that, um, you know, subjectively you can set intention, you know, when you wake up in the morning that like, I'm going to, behave this way. I am going to um, be more present. I'm going to, um, you know, commit to uh, my goals today in this way. Um, It was very hard to square those. I mean, I think that at a behavioral level, at our own subjective level, that seems to be 
real, right? It feels very real. Uh, and we know that there are practices that you can engage in, whether that's journaling in the morning, which helps to sit, or at night to sit mm-hmm. here. Um, that this seems to change behavior. It seems to be effective. But I don't think we really understand what that means uh, in terms of the brain. I don't know if we ever will, frankly, because that is, that is, that is, a, that is, that gets to the crux of it, you know, the sort of ghost in the machine. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think anybody, anybody in neuroscience would, you know, seriously consider that there's something immaterial there, but it's, you know, it, it, it doesn't, it does not lend itself easily to um, kind of, you know, cracking, cracking that open. Um, but, you know, as we were saying before, there are, there are certainly um, behavioral practices, mindsets, intentionalities that um, seem to, at very least, when you engage in them, prime the decision-making system to react in a certain kind of way, right? To the information in your environment, um, to uh, help uh, set priorities and goals and values. I mean, and really what, you know, that's in, in some sense, some in, in a, an emotional, um, motivational um, process as well. And, um, you know, it's actually, once you begin to break it down that way, it's not too hard to think about how that might all really work. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you can think about the bucket filling uh, metaphor that we um, talked about before and let's say you really you know and your choice is let's say it's eating the donut or eating the um you know <laughs> eating the apple uh <clears throat> you can just um through sort of a you know it's hard but if you turn up the value of you know fitness and health and attach that to apples you know then uh you're going to make that apple bucket fill up faster and you're going to be more likely to choose the apple so we know there's a way to do that, um, and it makes some sense with what we know about the, uh, the underlying neurobiology. Um, but we just don't, you know, I would not, I would not say that um, we know exactly where that locus of control is, other than that it seems to be there, mm-hmm. and it seems like you can engage it, and it seems to be super important for um, changing and overriding, uh, you know, unhealthy patterns of behavior. And so one last thing now, what's been the most, you know, powerful tip that you can provide or that, you know, from your life that has brought you this, you know, the success that you've had to, to reach your peak performance? Because obviously you've had a tremendous career <laughs> and, and a lot more to go. And so what would you, uh, what piece of advice would you leave, uh, you know, to our listeners? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, this super question and now it's funny that I get asked to reflect on uh, you know, how I reached some level of performance because I didn't feel like I was heading in that direction uh, for a long time, you know, as a sort of shy, anxious uh, kid. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, there's, there's a few things and, and they relate to what we've talked about. Maybe let's say there are three things. So one is um, respectful curiosity. So none of us knows everything. And, um, you know, it, it, you can learn a lot from basically everyone, but it, that requires, uh, you know, some engagement, uh, it requires, um, dropping your normal, you know, wariness and actually listening to somebody. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is really critical. I mean, it's been, 
important to my success because I've learned so much from other fields. You know, what I do right. is amalgam of various disciplines. But that meant having to actually go out and talk to people and, and try to learn their language a little bit and respect what they do. Um, right. So I think that's an important one. The second one is very strongly connected to that, which is <clears throat> connect to people, right? We know, um, is, we know it's super important for uh, success in life uh, in general, uh, both in terms of having social support, but also uh, you know, having connections is, is a really important way to get information and to um, get opportunities. And when you exercise your social brain like that, we know it actually, um, that part of your brain grows. It actually gets bigger and it gets mm -hmm. more, it's better at its job and it makes you better able to connect with other people. So that's two. You know, and the third is, is kind of like the, the, um, the meathead part of uh, you know, performance, which is, uh, you know, we know that, you know, being physically active is really important for the health of your body. But if there's one thing we've really learned in the last decade is that being physically active is really important for the health of your mind and your brain. Um, it's the number one best thing you can do to stave off dementia, um, to uh, keep your memory systems intact and your ability to, uh, to be flexible. And, um, you know, and, it, and in terms of mental health, it's um, as good as or superior to uh, any drug on the market for, um, mm -hmm. for, for mental health. So uh, I know that if I don't, if I don't you know, do CrossFit in the morning, uh, I'm going to be unhappy all day. Absolutely, <laughs> Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So respectful curiosity, connect to people and being physically active. Those are fantastic recommendations and, and, and amazing tips um, from uh, one of the leading, you know, neuroscientists and leading uh, experts in the field and in terms of, you know, decision making and how that's affecting every, you know, everything we do and, and even in businesses and everything. So, um, Michael, thank you so much for being on. I've had a, a tremendous time here with you. I love talking about this. We can talk about this all day. Uh, but thank you for sharing uh, everything that you have today. Yeah, my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on the show. And so if you enjoyed this podcast, the Peak Performance Podcast, make sure to subscribe below. Uh, and also, you know, share this with a friend that might uh, be interested in this message. I think there's a lot of tremendously powerful information. And you can change the trajectory of someone else's life you know, today by forwarding this, uh, this video or this podcast. So thanks again for being with us and make it a great one. If you loved what you heard in today's episode of Game Changers, please subscribe and rate us. The lessons and the stories in these podcasts are immensely valuable. So I invite you to share them with a friend who needs to hear it. You may end up being the game changer in their lives.